Hello, everybody. Welcome to another new episode of the Premier Raleigh Small Business and Special Interest Podcast, where we bring you stories from business owners and special interest groups from around the triangle. Good morning, everybody. We are here with Rob Bio, the Mortgage Pro, and uh, we're on our next episode of the Raleigh Small Business Podcast. And Rob is actually with me on my uh, the Perspective Podcast also, which is really good. And uh, but I wanted to have him on here and we kind of dive a little bit deeper. Uh, we've all gained an experience a little bit since the first one we did, and I think it's important to have him back and uh, kind of dive back into a little bit about who he is, why he does it, and where 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 you can find him at. So. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, just a little about myself. I'm a, a licensed real uh, licensed mortgage loan officer in the beautiful state of North Carolina. I'm only licensed in North Carolina, uh, but I'm able to assist folks with purchases or refinances all the way from the mountains to the coast. Um, love what I do. You know, I assist people with getting them in their first home, starting their family, putting down roots, or perhaps saving them money on a refinance, or, you know, buying a at home because the kids have left and they're downsizing or maybe they've had some more kids come on board recently and they've got to get a bigger house. Um, so just assisting people with the purchase and refinance, uh, strictly residential loans. I don't do any commercial, um, but just love what I do. And, and again, appreciate you having me back on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess, uh, I mean, last time we talked a little bit about like first time home buying. Mm -hmm. I guess we can kind of maybe tiptoe down that one a little bit. And if anybody wants to, I can include on the end um, in the bio of this one if you want to like listen to the first one. Uh, but let's tiptoe down a little bit down the first time home buying and maybe some things that are like changing in our current environment. Um, sure. Yeah, so I love working with first time home buyers. Um, buying a home is a very exciting time. You know, most people only do it once or twice and be able to be a part of that is, is pretty special. So for first-time home buyers, you know, they tend to be pretty green, you know, not really familiar with the process, maybe have done some research online. Um, but that's why it's so important to make sure you're working with a trusted resource, somebody, you know, who you've built a rapport with, who you know has your best interests in mind and isn't motivated by the transaction, but more so the relationship. Um, so first-time home buyers, there's, there's a lot of options out there. Um, some aren't specific to first-time home buyers, but people may think they are, like the FHA loan, for example, is a government-backed loan, 3.5% down. I had a conversation with someone the other day, and they said, well, I'm not a first-time home buyer. And I explained that they didn't have to be to utilize that program. Um, as well as, you know, some down payment assistance, you know, North Carolina Housing offers uh, finances, you know, where you're taking a slightly higher rate in exchange for that money. Um, but in some circumstances, it can be very beneficial to the buyer. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac both have a 3% down product to compete with FHA. And okay. for first-time home buyers, they'll allow uh, reduced mortgage insurance, which essentially will, will give you a slightly lower payment. And you have to complete a home buying education course to do so online. It's pretty simple. Uh, okay. You get a little certificate when you're done to, uh, to help get that reduced mortgage insurance. Um, Speaking with first-time homebuyers, I always let them take the floor, so to speak, and you know, want them to tell me a little bit about their situation, anything that they may consider unique about it, or perhaps anything they're looking to specifically achieve out of the mortgage. Um, so from there, you know, having that open dialogue tends to, to tell me a lot as far as what they're looking for. So from there, we kind of jump into the loan application. Um, the loan application is pretty straightforward. It's two-year employment history, two-year residence history, income assets, some government monitoring questions, and uh, as well as a credit inquiry. 
Okay. Um, but that'll tell us a lot, like debt to income ratio, credit score, you know, as far as buying power, which loan program may be best suited for those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so then part of my job is speaking through those options with the clients and figuring out, okay, well, is a conventional a better route than USDA or vice versa? Um, so if I'm ever accused of anything, for lack of a better term, it's probably throwing too much information. Um, for my personal taste, I just feel like if I don't give my clients as much information as possible about this process, that I'm doing them a disservice. Yeah, no, I can see that. Do you feel like um, sometimes, you, you said like the accused of giving too much information, do you find that it, um, in certain circumstances that overwhelms people? It can, just because there's so much to wrap your head around. And when I speak to these folks, I let them know that my expectation is not for them to retain everything that I just told them. But at the same token, I want them to realize that I'm a resource for them. Mm-hmm. So all this information is just common knowledge to me at this point, putting in my 10,000 plus hours in my industry. And, um, you know, but I don't know what they could be thinking. So I want to check off every box possible because I don't know if by me mentioning, you know, the 3% down or the reduced mortgage insurance, if that's going to trigger them to ask me a particular question, you know, or that they may have had a question coming into it that perhaps, you know, as we got talking, they have forgotten. But then once we've gone through some scenarios, the topic comes up and they go, oh, I'm happy you brought that up. Can you kind of expand on that for me a little bit? Okay. Yeah, that's good. Because I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've, Built my own house when I was 20. And I bought a house when I was like 24. So I owned both of them at the same time. So I was, I was actually in the, the living in one, renting in one, mm. or renting one to other people situation. So learning all the depreciation stuff and like there was mm-hmm. so much to learn of like owning multiple properties. Oh yeah. You know, and that was only in my early 20s. So I was only, you know, barely knew anything essentially at that point. So you're just taking any information you can. But I think it is important to have someone that will give you the extra information and then you know buying your first house is like i don't know it's um to me i hear so many people that go you know i really want to buy a house and they're like really trying they're really trying like this it's just like this um almost like we created this milestone to it mm-hmm. oh you're 25 you should be buying your new house your, your first house by now and it's like i don't know if i'll ever buy a house again mm-hmm you know, I built one and I bought one. I had the experience. I love to travel, right? Is is buying a home really part of the American dream or is it really part of the uh, the milestones, mm-hmm. right? Because I was working at a place uh, 10 years ago or so and there was this doctor that came in. He lived at the Alexin, which is the original apartments in North Hills above um, like the older, where Harris Cedar used to be. Okay. And... Uh, the girls I was working with asked this doctor, like, well, why do you rent an apartment when you can buy a house? And his answer to that was kind of like my reason why I might not ever buy a house again. He goes, because I like to travel. And he goes, when I lock the door and leave, if the water heater blows up, it's not my water heater. Sure. Right? No, so I, yeah. like, I mean, I get that, you know, like. Well, it's not going to be for everybody, but you touched on something that's been discussed within my industry for, for quite a while that, you know, is buying a home part of the American dream anymore? Or has the American dream changed a little bit to where there's not as much value on that? Um, obviously, I'm a little biased as far as right. my opinion right. is no, concerned exactly. on it. So. 
Um, you know, I think from the from the financial investment side of things, it can be very beneficial. Um, and you know, saying buying a home for your particular scenario, maybe ha- owning a new house because you travel so much isn't really ideal for you. You know, maybe you're better off with something like a townhome or a condo. You know, where you have the amenities and you're not having as much upkeep or, you know, what the case may be. But we're seeing statistically is that with our generation and the younger generation coming up, that they are taking a little bit longer to hit these particular milestones. You know, we're seeing millennials are waiting a little bit longer to get married. We're seeing millennials are waiting a little bit longer to have children. And then they're waiting a little bit longer to buy a home. Because generally speaking, most folks aren't really interested in putting down roots somewhere and feeling like they're staying in one spot until they're having a family and they want to, you know, have some um, consistency to the home life for the children. You know, especially once you have your kids in schools, if you're renting, you know, unless you're planning on staying at that location, you know, you may have to then have the conversation with, well, are our kids going to change schools? You know, we want to go to this area. Rents have gone up. You know, so it, there's there's a ton of variables that could go into that. I The value of owning a home for me, you know, from the financial standpoint, especially in our area, um, is is crucial, you know, to to the average net worth of someone when they retire. You know, it's there's many different ways now to be able to save money or invest it. I mean, you know, whether it's Mint or Robinhood or all these different apps that give the people the availability to, to do so. But owning a home, I think traditionally is just a very safe investment. You know, I think a lot of us too, although it may not have directly impacted our pockets, you know, from what happened in 2008, 2009, I think that scares a lot of people. It definitely, um, I, I got extremely lucky because, you know, talking about that is I owned uh, the, the house I bought. I was living in Tacoma, Washington, or like Puyallup mm. and stuff. And uh, one of the hardest hit areas. Yeah, it was heavy. Like I went back a couple of years later and it was just like this weird. Um, it was like a, a couple of years after that. And I went back and I remember them starting this, these apartment complexes, like where they're just putting the infrastructure in the plumbing, the pavement, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you go back and it's just like a ghost town, these huge properties that were all laid out with like partial roads and like, you know, the plumbing sticks still popping up out of the ground and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they sat there for like three years like that yep. before someone had the money to like really jump back into it and like finish it. But I literally sold my house. It was within, I don't know the exact from start to finish, but like literally sold my house within six months of the complete downturn. Wow. Like it was like, I was like, whew, like, yeah. you know, it was tight. But I was also part of the bad mortgage thing Mm. and I didn't realize it because I was like um you know I was referred to this guy he's like great guy you know like he'll help you out we'll get you in the house whatever I was like cool so I went and talked to him sure enough he did everything he needed to do we got in and uh it was about a year or so after I had sold my house and a friend of mine from out there she sends me this message she goes hey check this out and she sends me this newspaper article and the guy that I was like, I remember that I saw, saw his name and I was like, oh yeah. And he was the first person in the state of Washington that got prosecuted for bad mortgages Wow! after the crash. And I was like, shit, cause she used him also. I, I referred her to him. Yeah. You know, it's like, got me in there. He was a great guy. He was really nice. Like send her over to him or him over to her or whatever. And 
you know, and we both ended up in that same situation. Yeah, um, it's, um, I, I tried to educate myself on, a, on the history of my industry because all that went down before I, I got into doing this. But um, yeah, there was certainly a lot of predatory lending going on. You know, there was also a lot of just, I, I don't know, as someone who prides myself on with integrity, I can't really wrap my head around how someone could sleep at night doing that. You know, they must have convinced themselves, convinced their, their own mind that what they were doing is right. You know, whether that be, you know, perhaps falsifying documents to make income look better than it was or... That was my situation. What? I remember I remember him sitting there at the table. We were at the desk and he's like, oh, so this is like, we don't quite have enough of this. And he goes, well, we'll just set it at that. And then like, he would just like change things like right in mm -hmm. front of me. And I was like, I didn't know any different. Sure. I wasn't, I was still like, I mean, I was 24 years old. Like, right. I was still learning a lot about life, let alone knowing how a mortgage actually worked. And like, I just brought you the stuff you told me to bring you. Here it is. And you're like, okay, well, we're, let me ask you a few questions. All right, we'll shift this to that and we'll use this. And like, I was like, all right, well. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to play devil's advocate, you know, not knowing this gentleman, obviously, if he was one of the first to get arrested, there, there was valid reason for so. But, you know, if, if his job is to get you in the home, you know, that's what he did. Now, whether he does it, you know, in a way that, you know, hurts you financially because of the terms that perhaps were promised and then didn't end up being the case and coming to fruition. You know, there was people who were getting adjustable rates thinking they were getting fixed rates or they were getting put on, you know, interest-only balloon payments. Right, I remember the balloon ones. Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, like an interest-only balloon payment, essentially, you're not gaining anything on the principal. You're simply just paying the interest. So back in that time frame, 2008, 2009, we were seeing such a rapid growth of appreciation in homes. You know, even my home state, New Jersey, this was notorious with the McMansions, they called them. And, you know, people wouldn't even really move into them. They were buying a $400,000 house, only paying the interest on it, presuming that it was going to appreciate to $500,000 the next year. And their payments were minimal. And then they just cash out and... You know, oh, made a pretty I, didn't, penny. I didn't know that, like that yeah. aspect of it. So people who were trying to play it like that, then when the downturn came and there was no appreciation and they're actually underwater, when the term balloon is referenced, what that means is when the interest only period is up and the loan balloons, the whole note is called due at that point. So if you don't have the money to pay it, you know, then they're going to take the house, start the foreclosure proceedings. So, you know, there's... Um, there's a lot of unscrupulous people out there. Unfortunately, you know, my industry doesn't necessarily have the greatest track record. I'd certainly argue, you know, there's there's great doctors, there's not so great doctors, and there's fantastic attorneys, and there's not such great I attorneys. I imagine it was in my own industry as well. You yeah. know, and I would say, I'm going to call it as healthcare in general, because, I mean, I can say massage, right? But if you look at healthcare in a, in a, in a broad spectrum, Finding a good doctor is funny. It is just as hard as finding a good mortgage person. Like you're, you're still yeah. dealing with another human, and mm -hmm. it was like, well, I can't find a good massage person. I was like, but I mean, my girlfriend has a hard time finding a doctor that she trusts. That you know that, you know that, why she care for her, or like take the time to help you or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. my sister's a nurse, and my other sister's a respiratory therapist. So the medical world isn't any different dealing with people, sure, as any of the rest of us. Is that is there more? You know the the regulations and like in, in medicine scope of practice and, med and and then we have you know are you a good person 
right? And that really kind of feeds into like, you have regulations that you have to follow and they're set in place for a reason. Mm -hmm. So like people that might get frustrated with you because like, I thought I could buy a house and you said I could buy a house and I I just figured, you know, I have this much money, I can buy a house. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason that they have all these regulations in place because it's not to hinder you from buying a house, it's to protect you. Correct. You know, and I think people need to really wrap their head around that. Like, it's not to say that only rich people can buy houses or only people that have this can buy houses. It's going, we went through all this before and it went really bad. So these are in place because we want to put you into a home because you can afford to buy a home, but like not bury yourself. Sure. Yeah. And even, you know, counterparts within my industry, they, we, I'm, I may have a different view on this as some others, you know, in, in our industry, the, it's common practice to kind of turn your nose up at regulation. You know, it, it's viewed with a negative connotation. And I don't necessarily feel that way. You know, I feel the same way that it is put in place to protect the borrowers. I mean, the fact of the matter is this. When we're, when we're qualifying a borrower, we're using gross income numbers for non-self-employed borrowers. Gross income, not take-home. Right. So if we're talking sixty grand a year salary, I'm counting $5,000 a month for qualifying income. That's not their take-home, obviously. In addition to that, we're only counting the liabilities that report to credit. So any installment loans, like an auto loan, student loans, or revolving charges, like a line of credit or a credit card. Um, we're not counting any living expenses. We're not counting cell phone, utilities, things of that nature. So we're not looking at the whole picture when it comes to the debts. And we're giving credit for more money when it comes to the income. You know, and there's, I've had, fortunately, not a a whole lot, but what makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up is when I have someone reach out to me and say, I want to know what the absolute most I can qualify for is. Because I just feel like that's a recipe for disaster. Right. You're, you know, trying, you're trying to max yourself out. Right. Really, you know. Now, in certain scenarios, you know, perhaps, you know, there's a spouse that isn't on loan. So we know there's some additional income that isn't being reflected on okay. the, on the actual that. application. But, you know, every, everyone's situation is different. Um, from the regulation standpoint, and I won't get too far down the rabbit hole on this one because there is some political stuff that is tied to it, but the, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is supposed to essentially keep creditors in check, for lack of a better term, as far as making sure that you know consumers are not being scammed by credit card companies, collection agencies, you know, banks really, you know, from many different aspects of, of lending. Um, the CFPB has been kind of, it's still around, but it might as well not be currently. Um, so I don't know that they're doing their job. So now you can argue that, well, we cut some of this regulation, it's going to give more people the ability to buy a home. Now the much deeper question is, is that a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. Because owning a home, in my opinion, is not a right. It's a privilege. Now, everybody obviously needs a home and shelter, but, you know, owning a house or owning, you know, owning a property versus renting, it's still your home. Um, But, you know, in order to protect some people against themselves, you know, we can't we can't approve everybody. You know, there's certain scenarios where, you know, I may take a look at someone's credit and we see in this past year that. You know, they've had a couple lates on their auto payment, a couple lates on their credit card, 
you know, and life happens, you know, things come up where people have to adjust. But, you know, from the bank and underwriting standpoint, looking at that, and if you're looking to borrow a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars, and they're saying you're having difficulty making some of these much smaller payments, right? No, it's going to raise a red flag for them. So, you know, it's, I love what I do because I love people. I love helping people and I love helping them get into a home, especially, you know, a lot of folks who may have thought that there was never a chance for them to buy a home. It just, it wasn't in the cards for them. Uh, you know, whether that be because they thought they had to save up 20% or they've just had different life events that, you know, have kind of been two step forward, three steps back kind of thing. Right. Um, so, but what I tell people all the time, you know, when we first have the initial conversation, you know, even if I don't tell you what you want to hear, when we go through the application, if right now is not the right time, well, let's discuss a game plan on what we can do to get you there. You know, whether that's getting your credit on the right track or, you know, discussing a budget to put in place to help you save money, you know, towards down payment or closing costs. So, um, and that, you know, the problem solving aspect of it is, is something that I enjoy to try and kind of, to make the puzzle pieces fit, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I can see like, um, you know, cause I'm 40, so I, in my mind, I always remember like, you know, 20% down. The only reason I was able to build my first house when I was 20 is because my dad owned like 10 acres of property. He gave me like an acre and a half of it, mm-hmm. right? As a kind of a gift, right? Which then gave me collateral. Then I was able to take a loan out based on that collateral. Mm-hmm. So like, I was able to do that. But like, you heard all the time, like 20% down, you know, all this money to be able to like get into a house and stuff. And like, to be able to have the idea that there are these programs out there that you can get in for, you know, I'm a, I'm a veteran, so I had, you know, 0% down. Mm-hmm. Um, but to even have a 3% down or a 3.5% down, where people that are older that maybe have already accepted the fact that they might not be able to get into a house, that all of a sudden realize that, oh, I only need 3%, not 20%, that mm-hmm. I've been told my whole life growing up. Right. You know, from back in the day, it was always, you know, 20% down for your house. You know, to know that there's those programs out there. You know, and then to also, like you said, to, to put a pro, to a, a plan in place, right? Maybe they didn't realize that. Maybe they didn't realize they only need 3%. Well, now, okay, so now I know that I only need 3%. And now we can wait a year mm-hmm. or a year and a half. And, and you give me the things that you're going to look for in a year and a half from now. And mm-hmm. we can go, I really want to get in a house. Like, this is my goal. This is my dream. And now we can put these, like, these programs in place or these budgets in place to go from this point to this point. This is what you're shooting for. And if you hit that and we have this credit, if things, these things paid off and you have this income and you know, this down payment and let's see what we can get you into. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. No, and one thing you touched on, I remember an article this past year by housingwire.com and they referenced that poll they did over 50% of potential home buyers still think you have to have 20% to put down. Like oh, wow. you said, it's what yeah. we were taught, you know, it's what we were told by our parents and so on. Um, fortunately, you know, back when we were told that growing up rates, interest rates are not even close to where they were in the early nineties, where you might've been looking at double digits. Um, you know, and some people I've heard actually view some of those lower down payment programs as predatory lending. Like they, they, they don't think that you should be able to buy a house with that little money down. So, you know, everyone's different. You know, some people would say, well, the regulation's too much. You know, we got to open it up so there's more people who are able to afford and buy homes. You know, but at the same token, you know, there's other people who say, well, you got to have more skin in the game. You know, you shouldn't be able to buy a house with only 3% or no money down. And it's like, well, 
okay, well then those people that you want to help, the odds of them being able to save up 20% in their situation. I mean, if you have a combined household income of 60 grand and after taxes, they're bringing home around, you know, 40 or so. And, you know, they've got multiple kids and they're in school and just life happens. I mean, do you think it's feasible for those people to save up 20% down? I mean, right. if, no, exactly. if we're talking a $200,000 house that they're going to be able to save $40,000, you know, it's the government-backed loans like VA, FHA, and USDA, you know, are, are designed to, to help lower to moderate income households. Um, as you referenced, VA is 100% financing. VA is one of the slickest loans out there, as I think it should be. You know, another one that I utilize quite a bit is the USDA program. USDA is a rural development product. It's through the Department of Agriculture. Um, because of that, there are geographic restrictions to it. For example, in the triangle, you know, if someone's looking to be inside the belt line, more than likely USDA is not going to be an option for them. Okay. I do a lot of business in Johnston County. Currently, all of Johnston County is USDA eligible. Um, so with USDA, it as with VA, there's no money down. Okay. So now... Is USDA, like, based on, like... Um not really a geographic area, but like, is it based on population density of, per square? Yeah. Density of population, okay. yeah, one hundred percent. So, um, and that does adjust. So, then when the twenty twenty census data gets released, the USDA maps are gonna are gonna change. So, Johnson County could look a heck of a lot different at that point. Well, Clayton's growing so much. So, exactly. Garner's growing so much. Mm-hmm. You're right. So, like those whole areas right there, I could see what would be changing. Like, Which is part of the reason, you know. I, I try to. I've been talking a lot about USDA because I, I think it is a great program for first-time homebuyers. Um, and if you're looking to be more in a, a suburb-type area to put down roots and raise a family, then it's a great option. Um, and because the the growth potential that we're seeing in Johnston County compared to what we've seen in a lot of the other suburbs, you know, outside the Beltline, get it while the getting's good. You know, USDA is still available in all of Johnston County, so let's take a look at it and, you know, see if it's a good fit. And they've recently, you know, made a change. A big issue with first-time homebuyers is student loan debt. Okay. USDA recently, and I just put a video out on social media as well on my site, robbyothemortgagepro.com, that they, we previously would have had to count 1% of the student loan debt. And this doesn't matter if it's in deferment, forbearance, if it's an income-based repayment, if it's anything other than a fixed, fully amortized payment, USDA was requiring us to count 1% of the overall balance toward debt to income. So for someone with $50,000 in student loan debt, even if they weren't paying on it because it's in deferment, I would have to count $500 a month toward the debt to income. That's a lot. Whereas now, the change, they've gone to a half of a percent, which may not sound like a huge change, a big difference, but in that same example, now we're only having to count $250 a month. Right. So it's a, it's a change in the right direction. Freddie Mac for conventional loans actually made this change this past year, and USDA's followed suit. Hopefully, the other loan programs will as well. Um, but part of the reason we have to do that as well is because student loan debt is... I think one of, if not the only debt that you can really never get rid of. Can't get rid of it, and, right. and it's such a such a weird thing because you watch it and like you you see so many stories where like you know, even mine, right? Where I only borrowed this much and I've been paying like what they told me to pay, and now I owe ten thousand dollars more than what I even borrowed. Yeah, 
right? So like, I think that system, and that's a whole rabbit hole in its own, but right. I think that's, there's something very broken about that. Yeah. You know, so like, you were talking about one, you know, yes, they're adjusting it, great, that's awesome, right? But the, the situation that they put these people in where kids are waiting longer to buy houses, you know, like younger people are, but is it because that, you know, we've kind of put them into the situation where we sent them into college, because we were told that you have to. Because you have to, right? And now you're in the situation where you're trying to pay all this back, and the jobs that are available aren't paying enough to be able to even pay back the loan. So then you just keep deferring it, deferring it, and you have this big, it's this big nest of like, how do you get out of this thing? Right. Right. And that's why I really like the whole like pushing towards trades and stuff like that. And, oh, absolutely. You know, because I've done plumbing, I've done electricity, I've built my own, like when I said I built my own house, I built my own house. Uh, minus the masonry and the and the and the footers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, other than that, I did all the framing, all the all the plumbing, electricity, like everything myself. Nice. You know, so that was a really rewarding experience of mine. But, um, you know, getting these people, the younger people, where they can get into trades and stuff like that, and make sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year on a on a two year program mm-hmm. that they might have twenty thousand dollars in at most. Yeah. Right. It's a great thing, but it's good that they're helping the student loan situation a little bit, but they also need to really help the student loan situation a little bit. Sure. Right? No, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it has changed a lot. I mean, for example, you know, FHA, they haven't adjusted. They're still at the 1% uh, right now, but it was less than a few years ago that they were counting 2% of the oh, balance toward okay. the debt to income. Um, so there's there's a lot of a lot of moving parts with that, but you're right. I mean, something's got to change for sure. Um, and, and I don't know if, you know, from a consumer standpoint, if, if having that debt is something that I haven't had anyone tell me this necessarily, but I wonder if it's in the back of people's minds, like, you know, Hey, I've got this huge hole to climb out of with this debt that I haven't had to pay on. And now, all right, it's, it's go time. And now I'm also going to be adding a few extra hundred thousand dollars in debt, you know, per, Maybe that's something that's holding them back, you know, because right. going into buying a home, you know, you, you'd want to keep your debts low, as low as possible. Right. And you go in there and all of a sudden you see you have this, like, we'll say on a lower end, $75,000 in student loans. Mm-hmm. But most state universities are like, you know, 125, 150, like you could hit 200,000. Sure. And now you're sitting on this, you're looking at your uh, your, your credit report and you're, at, you're sitting at $150,000 in student debt. And then you go and add a $200,000 house to it. And you're like, holy shit, like. They're telling you you're not supposed to be in debt, but now I'm three hundred fifty thousand dollars in the hole. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me just when you were talking about the American dream. There was a a commercial. I can't I don't know if it was like insurance or, or what it was. It was a pretty pretty well known commercial. But guy, beautiful home. He's walking around. He's like, you know, I'm mowing my lawn and I just put a new roof and I'm doing all this and I'm in debt up to my eyeballs with a big smile on his face. Yeah, you know, and and we kind of chuckle about it, but, it, but that's a serious matter. You know, financial stress and anxiety can, can really cripple somebody. Um, well, I just saw the article that came out. Um, they were talking about how, um, and I'm trying to throw the 1% under the, under the bus or anything like that. Cause you know, they, they figured out how to use money. Right? Mm-hmm. They figure out like, if you figure out how to use the money in the right way, you can, you can get to that point too, through mm-hmm. investments and stuff like that. But, they're saying since 1989, the top 1% has gained $21 trillion in uh, income, where the bottom part of society has lost $900 billion. They said the majority of P 
people in the world are worth less are worth less than zero. And and I think that as as disturbing as that that is to me personally, you know, in my opinion, that's even more reason why there should be value put on buying a home. Because for folks in that situation, you know, when time comes that they retire, you know, they may not be in a position to be able to live on their own. But if they've bought a home and have paid on it and have gained, you know, a sizable amount of equity, that's a great nest egg for retirement or to be able to leave to your children or, you know, right. to you know, have children, to donate to some, you know, charity that you, is close to your heart or whatever the case may be. Um, but that's why I'm such a big believer in it, you know. and the what happened in 0809 with the housing crisis you know perhaps is in the back of people's minds thinking that maybe it's not as great an investment because of that but you know recessions are cyclical you know we're kind of due for one we've been hearing it from all the talking heads for a while for a while yeah a couple years now it's just kind of like yeah when's it gonna pop if you look at since 1900 we've we've really averaged a recession every 10 years so um, so we are due for one, but when it happens, you know, I don't think it's going to be anything even close to what happened in 08 and 09. And, you know, I consider us maybe a little jaded for lack of a better term, but that we're very lucky in the triangle as far as our economy with pharmaceutical, with it, with wonderful universities, you know, we're in a little bit of a bubble, so to speak, you know, when, when 08 and 09 happened, you know, areas like Tacoma, Vegas, you know, Orlando, there was certain areas that Detroit. were Detroit, yeah, yeah, that were hit extremely hard um, that, you know, some have recovered and some haven't. You know, Vegas is one of the hotter real estate markets currently, um, but it comes in waves. I think if you ride it out, you know, you're going to be happy with where you're at. Um, but I don't think with any any recession looming, I don't. I don't think there has to be much worry about a drop in value. You know, there certainly could be a little bit, but we've seen such strong appreciation right around 3%, you know, for the past few years that, you know, unless you just bought a home, you know, even if the recession happened today and I lost a little bit of equity from when I bought it, I'd still end up on top. So, you know, kind of going back to what we spoke about earlier but a little bit different as opposed to two steps forward three steps back you know a lot of times buying a home it's going to be three steps forward two steps back so you want to make sure that you're out on top but a lot of it will come down to do with timing too like one of the oldest cliches in real estate is buy low sell high you know that's easier said than done to be able to to play the market like that right to really know like the futures of things and like i mean if you can kind of pay attention to it and really understand like the market and like you know are we getting closer and closer to a downturn or is it like, you know, are we in like 75% of the 10 years where we're like, you got a few years, you can get some good equity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you do have a downturn, you're not that bad off because you already had, you bought it low enough. Sure. Right. But, you know, if you're trying to go, I think that that comes into that research part and really understanding that what you're doing, because I see it so often, I hear about it so often is that, you know, everything's that you know, because it is less money per month to own a house than is a lot of times for to rent an apartment anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these apartments like Cameron Village, $2,700 a month. North Hills, like $4,000 a month. You know, it's like... $2,700 a month. You'd be looking at, you know, if you had 20% down, you'd be looking at like a $600,000 house. Yeah. 
That's crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, even at, in Clayton, even we're seeing, you know, apartments that are going for, you know, one bedroom is over $1,200. Yeah, that's why. You, you buy over a $2,000 house, $200,000 house and have your, your payment be around 1200 a month. Yeah. You know, it's... So, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of value there. I even, you know, one tool I like to share with the first-time homebuyers, I'm able to provide like a rent versus buy analysis, you know, and, and there's some variables that we, we have to change depending on the area, but all the data that they have on the appreciation and the cost for upkeep is taken into consideration and things like that. So of kind of gives a, a long-term plan because, you know, certainly when the market's hot, you know, there's plenty of opportunity with people flipping homes, making a quick dollar and things like that. But, you know, real estate from the sense of buying a home is a long-term investment. You know, it's, it's the, the going back to what I was talking about, the McMansions and the interest only where you're buying a home and you're banking on it to gain $100,000 in a year and cash out and, you know, just be skipping down the block. Right. You know, it sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? You know? It's because it is, you know, it, right. it's, it's, you know, or if you hear your local barber, you know, talking about, you know, flipping homes and how great it and how lucrative it's been for him, you know, certain, certain indicators may give us an idea that, all right, maybe, maybe regulations are a little too loose right now. Right. Um, but, but the whole flipping homes thing like that, I mean, I don't know if we wanted to go too far into that one, but like. You know, you can, the idea of flipping homes, they've glamorized it on TV. Right. It's like, just buy this house. Look, we made $300,000 or we made like such and such money. And I'm like, yeah, but you're also, (laughs) you're also in an area that might allow for that. Or there's the, the, the homes are, are, that you're finding, you're able to put the money down enough to like buy it in cash or buy it without financing to be able to put a few, you know, 20, 30 grand into it and flip it. Right. As to going, you know, it's people that. They're, they're glamorizing and they're going, well, I'm going to buy this house on a mortgage, right? And then you go and, like, do all your work to it and you try to get rid of it right away and all of a sudden you're sitting on it, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you're in a market that didn't that wasn't conducive to that that style of work. Or the person's going, well, I know you did all the work on it, but, like, it was still an old house or it was still, like... Right. You know, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are a ton of people who have done very well for themselves flipping homes um, but yeah I mean television has glamorized it for sure HGTV um, and they're in our area actually um, they're gonna be in Clayton uh, for house hunters so that'll be pretty neat but um, you know they they do it, it's television that's yeah. the best way to summarize it. it's not real life it's television you know it's it's like okay we bought this house for a hundred thousand dollars we put a hundred thousand into it and now it's worth three hundred thousand you know it's it, it's not that simple you right. know, you, you're not going to get a dollar for dollar and for what you're putting into the home, you know, for like, um, you know, bathroom and kitchen reno, you might be looking at 70 to 80%, you know, return on your money. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of factors that go into place. You know, you don't know if when you buy a property, it could be a foundation issue or whatever the case may yeah. be. So, and then you're a whole different ball but yeah, that, that, that's definitely a topic for another day. We could dive down that, but, yeah. um, but there's just many different avenues to, to be able to make real estate profitable for somebody. And just, just from the simple fact of just owning a home is one of the safer, you know, slower but safer investments that you can have. Um, I think know. people need to realize the slow piece. Like, patience is a very big piece missing in our world right now. Because everyone's oh, yeah. everything like right now. Like, our, our, I love social media for what it's for. I love the, the technology we use for what it's for. But I think it's, it's also triggered this idea that, 
I can just, I don't know, just click my phone and buy a house, right? And then all of a sudden I've owned it for three years, I can move, I'm going to make $100,000 in equity in three years or whatever. And I was like, I don't think you really get like the, the longevity that you're, you know, there's people that are taking thirty and $40,000 in equity out of their home or more owned their home for 10 years. Right. Right. They're not like, oh yeah, I bought this house, you know, didn't probably, I paid way less than rent. And all of a sudden after a couple of years, I'm going to walk away and I'll be, have all this money to go out and do whatever I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. It, it's long term, but, um, the benefits are there, you know, even even though with the most recent tax laws uh, changes, we don't, most people don't have the ability to write the interest off anymore with the standard deduction being, you know, 24 grand um, for a married couple, but um, there's still so much benefit to it. Um, so, but, you know, everyone's situation is different. You know, if it's, if you're young and you're traveling and, you know, you're gone all the time, then, you know, perhaps, you know, buying a home isn't in the cards right now and maybe it's later on down the road. Um, but from the investment standpoint, I mean, anyone who's been in this area for a little bit, you know, take 08, 09 out of the equation, but let's go back 20 years ago, you know, and look what, you know, what homes were costing in this area then, you know, it's not like we're going to hit a peak and that's going to be it, you know, it's still going to continue to grow. So, you know, the home that you buy today, 20 years from now, I mean, can you imagine if you owned a home in North Hills 20 years ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, that's that's how you have to look at it. And it's, you know, at the same, it's not always going to be that lucrative of appreciation. Like you said, it right. is going to depend on the area. Right. Well, you Five Points did the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there was a guy I was talking to, or uh, it was his neighbor or whatever, but he bought before they tore all the big apartments down mm-hmm. over there like, and built, like, that big fancy neighborhood. Yeah. You know, and he, they bought a house that was run down for, like, 30 grand or something like that, 30, mm-hmm. 40 grand that needed a ton of work done to it. But when he finally sold it, he sold it for like three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yep. Right. I mean, it was ten years later. Right. But like he bought it in that area. Just you just hit the right time. Sometimes you know you don't realize that they're gonna get ready to take this whole neighborhood and turn it into what used to be basically the old World War Two like small little cottages into these like you know. Yeah, you definitely have to try and have some foresight to to see what could be, um, which is difficult. You know, because yeah. none of us have a crystal ball. Right. Um, right. But if you if you can look at the area that you're living in and kind of do some research historically and see what home values were then and kind of look at the peaks and valleys and see where that matches up with different recessions we may have had at the time, mm-hmm. you know, it, but where you're at today is going to yeah. be significantly better than, than when you first started. Right. I think one of the foresights you could have is like the big anchor stores. You saw them in Garner, like mm. they put up like uh, Cabela's. Yeah. Right. You know that you know they're putting these bigger shopping areas out there that you know it's going to eventually pull out from here into there to fill that in. Supermarkets. Yeah. Supermarkets do a ton of market research um, as far as potential growth in areas and with the amount of you know um, permits for lots permitted to to build homes on and they they anticipate the growth. So when if you see a new shopping mart uh food store going up you know that, that's a great indicator that that area is going to be growing you know for the foreseeable future um just from my experience um no that makes sense i mean because that's why i was thinking i was like you know we might not be able to see the future but like we have so much data now and and even if like the little bit of data that i watch for my business and i'm sure that you you with yours there's people that know all of the data mm-hmm. right and there's tons of it 
And we were like, oh, well, obviously, like, we're not going to spend how many hundreds of millions of dollars to build, like, Wegmans. Right. Or whatever, if what they don't know of the data and the, the, the financial market research and all that isn't going to support them spending this investment of, like, how many hundreds of millions of dollars to build sure. this place. So I think that would be a great way to kind of, like, okay, well, this is all coming up, so I might have to wait and buy one of the new houses now, but not sell anything for, you know, and just sit on it for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, and then... Or even if it's something where, you know, maybe you don't have a family, maybe you don't have kids, but you you, you know you're going to be in the area for a while, you know, maybe like we talked about with you, perhaps a townhome is, is good for somebody who, you know, is going to be living by themselves, and, you know, that's going to appreciate as well, and then, you know, maybe... 10 years from now, that person is settling down. And then maybe they can sell that townhouse and use the proceeds for, you know, a substantial down payment to be able to afford a bigger home or, you know, keep that property, rent it out, have somebody pay your mortgage for you and continue to, you know, gain the equity based on there. So there's a ton of different variables on on why it's beneficial, in my opinion. But I do think that the, the general public is starting to view home ownership as as less and less uh, of an importance to for their financial gain yeah i know you mentioned condos and townhouses before and there's a question that popped into my head and we'll kind of end it on this one and is getting a mortgage harder or more challenging in regards to buying a condo which is basically buying an apartment Mm -hmm. a townhouse or a house so a townhouse generally is going to be treated no differently than a single-family detached residence. Okay. There's certain instances, um, I see it more so in Mecklenburg County in the Charlotte area, where even though they look like townhomes, the county has them zoned as condos, so you essentially just don't own the dirt underneath you. Um, but financing for condos actually can be quite different. Uh, main thing is there are two types of condos. There is a warrantable condo and a non-warrantable condo. So the two main factors that determine whether it's warrantable or non-warrantable, and we want it to be warrantable. Okay. So if one single owner or entity owns more than 10% of the total units, so if one person or LLC, if there's 100 units and they own more than 10 of them, then it's pushing towards non-warrantable. And then the other is uh, owner occupancy. If over 50% are non-owner occupied and they're renters, then that could all, those two main factors will kick it <clears throat> to be a non-warrantable condo. So the terms for a non-warrantable condo can be much different. You could be looking at a, a fairly higher interest rate and you're gonna be looking at more money down um, as okay. well. So unfortunately, really the only way to find out that information is to have the homeowners association the HOA complete a condo questionnaire with all that information on it. Um, you know they want to make sure that the HOA you know is is not in a deficit and that there's a surplus and, and many different factors. But the two main ones are single owner entity, no more than ten percent, and owner occupants have to be fifty percent or more. So, okay. um, but yeah, I mean condos they're becoming more abundant in Raleigh. Obviously, and you know the draw is kind of being in the heart of where everything's going on. You know, to be able to eat, work, live, and play, and kind of just be able to walk. And and I had the luxury of doing that. You know, when I lived in Charlotte in my mid twenties, and 
and it was a lot of fun. You know, at one point, my vehicle didn't leave the parking deck for six months. Oh, wow. You know, you just so, got to go anywhere you wanted to. Just, yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, condos, condos can be a little bit tricky. Okay. That's why I heard in the past. I was mm-hmm. kind of like, I figured I was like, you know, because you had mentioned, you know, like maybe a condo or a townhouse might be the better route. But and I was like, you know, my dad always said, you know, growing up, that's the old school mentality of like, why would you buy a condo? You're just basically paying for an apartment. Right. Right. So it's kind of like, I didn't really understand that piece of it and how hard it actually was to finance an apartment, essentially. Yeah. You know, or if that was like, um, you know, how how the mortgage world looked at buying a condo. If it was like, you know, you're still buying a house, you're still buying a property, but like, how much of the property, you know, is the appreciation still good on a condo? Yeah, it can be. Like, Absolutely. Um, you know, the the property is the bank's collateral. And they want to make sure that their collateral is sound. Yeah. You know, so they're going to look at marketability, you know, as well. That's why with the appraisals, you know, you're looking at a sales comparison approach. They want to see, all right, what other homes like this, you know, what other condos like this have sold in the most recent period and, you know, what were they selling for? Um, but no, condos can certainly appreciate. And, you know, if, if you travel a lot and, you know, depending on, the restrictive covenants of the HOA, you know, perhaps you're, you know, when you're out, you're renting that out on Airbnb or something like that, you know, and it's an additional revenue stream for you. So, um, but yeah, that's, they're a little bit different. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, it was absolute pleasure to have you again. Yeah. No, John, I appreciate it. There's always a lot more we can kind of, you know, you always pick a rabbit hole and kind of dig down a little bit farther. No, absolutely. I enjoy it. We'll have to do it again. Yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. If you'd like to share your story, you can contact me at another new perspective 101 at gmail.com or by phone at 984-212-4308. Have an amazing day.